Welcome. I'm Jean Mizutani from Include NYC, here with my colleague Lori Podvesker. We're coming to you today from the law offices of Neil Howard Rosenberg, the founder of New York City's oldest and largest firm devoted to the practice of special education law. One of the great privileges of doing this podcast is capturing the voices of New York City's iconic disability and special education leaders that entered the field at its inception. That was the unique period of time, starting in 1975, when Public Law 94-142 was passed, then known as the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act. Within a short time, Neil became the go-to attorney for parents struggling to find solutions to their child's educational needs, myself among them. Over the 40 years that Neil has been representing students with disabilities, he became one of the city's most prominent figures with a near-mythical reputation. The special education landscape in New York City would not have been the same without him, and we are thrilled to welcome Neil Rosenberg. Thanks, Jean. Hi, Neil. Uh, so happy that we're speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to meet the guy you just described. <laughs> well, let's talk about it a little bit. So you started practicing special ed law at the same time that the federal government had passed Public Law 94-142, and we're hoping that you could speak a little bit about what that was like for you at the time and how you got into disability. All right, well, what happened was that I started law school right out of college. I had to leave after one year because of the Vietnam, Vietnam War, and I took a position as a teacher within the New York City school system. Uh, and taught school for two years. I then returned to Rutgers Law School, and in the interim, they had started a program in education law, and I thought it was just a natural to uh, proceed in that concentration because I had absolutely no idea, other than wanting to be a lawyer, what area I wanted to practice in. So I returned to Rutgers, I finished my coursework, I did an internship um, in the area of education, and uh, it was with the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. I then graduated in 72 and continued to work off and on in education while I pursued a graduate degree and postgraduate degree in education because I wanted credibility both as an attorney and as an educator. And I obtained a master's degree and a professional diploma, which is the step between a master's and a doctor doctorate. Um, I was then employed at the Department of Ed, and since I was the lone man on the totem pole and nobody else really wanted to deal with special education, all of the special education cases were given to me. That's here in New York City that you That's worked. here in New York City. Wow, wow, wow. Things must have been very different back then. It was very different because there weren't anywhere near the amount of cases that there are today. Um, and we had far fewer cases, but since it was me, they all had a personal touch. And unlike today, where appeals of decisions of hearing officers are done on what attorneys call papers, then it required a personal appearance. So I was basically traveling up to Albany once a week to argue on behalf of the DOE um, in front of the state commissioner. Wow. <laughs> 
Wow, wow, wow. So how long did you work for the uh, New York City Department of Education? Four years. Four years. And after the four years, I was solicited by the State Ed Department to join a project to codify the federal law and write the commissioner's regulations for special education. So interesting. Um, if you can recall, um, to what extent were you able to integrate your own history with writing those regulations versus, you know, what was what directives were given to you, what were the goals of state ed back then, and how much did they coincide what the federal government wanted? Well, I have like to that. say that state ed was looking to achieve a parallel series of regulations. They were not uh, going to do anything other than make the regulations in New York a reflection of what the federal government wanted. And the people who were on the team with me were all educators. Uh, and I was the full-time lawyer, one was a part-time attorney and part-time educator, one was a psychologist and one was a parent advocate. And so we were both basically uh, given a task to do and we either met up in Albany, I was up there typically three days a week, they were all um, assigned and out of Albany, so they were there five days a week, and we would talk and we would meet and we finished the project in 18 months. That's amazing. That is so cool. So that would bring us up to around 1980. Correct. And so uh, what did you do after that? I came back to New York and looked for a job. <laughs> How'd that go? Well, <laughs> Was anyone in, practicing? In, in, in retrospect, it went great because it taught me a lesson. Nobody was interested in hiring an attorney who uh, specialized in education law, and I was not interested in going back to the Board of Education. Um, to be very honest with you, I felt that I was ultimately put in a position where I was prostituting my talents by advocating for positions that I were not, was not comfortable with. And so I just decided to gamble and open up an office by myself. I didn't have the funds for a secretary or a receptionist. Uh, I remember getting, going back to old files and looking at carbon copies of letters that I sent out and at the bottom left hand corner where you would put the initials of the author and then, you know, a slash and then who typed it. Well, I wrote my own initials, put a slash and put HS, which stood for himself. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> So I opened up an office. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So how did you get the word out about your office, and, or how did people hear about you? What did that look like? Because, you know... The first, the first piece of business, I believe, I had was representing supervisors uh, of education at the DOE who were being screwed by the system and also screwed by their union. And so um, I represented a group of them. It was almost like a class, what we call a class action suit. And it was a successful end to it. And I think word just got out. I mean, I don't remember. I certainly would be speaking to people. And um, very honestly, over the course of the years, a lot of my referrals have come from people at the DOE who also fell professionally uncomfortable in positions that they were forced to take 
and would walk a parent down a hallway and say, look, I'm sorry about what happened today, but call this guy because he will do what you need to have done. And I have never advertised and my referrals come from people at the department or at this point people in private special ed schools, pediatricians uh, and uh, other professionals in the field. Very cool. Sounds very similar today, even though we're talking about almost 40 years ago. There hasn't been very much change. Yeah, that's deep. We're not going to unpack that, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, some questions about, you know, your practice and cases. Um, is it easy to assess cases when they first come in? Uh, yes, for me. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, it might be more difficult for some other people, but having lived this field for as long as I have, um, I can basically assess a case in a very short period of time. I, I think that I am one of the few attorneys in this field who does not charge a fee for a consultation. And the reason for that is that I don't want to spend an hour to discuss a case where I can basically tell the parent in five minutes if they have a case or not. I don't think it's fair to them and I don't think it's fair to me. It's like a win-win for everybody. So I would rather not charge, give a complimentary consultation and discuss with the parent what I think needs to be done or what has to be done and they can choose to stay in my office or go somewhere else. Yeah, similar to some of the work we do in terms of, you know, figuring out what people need and then the next steps and who the responsibility is on and then coming back to us when those decisions are yeah, made. Yeah, I mean, you just develop a feel for it after a while. Yeah, very beautiful. So, um, most cases that you get now, uh, do they get settled, you know, by going to court? Do they get settled on papers like you were talking about before? What does that look like? Well, you have to file a hearing request to even open up the door with the DOE. Approximately 90% of the hearing requests that we file get settled. The other 10% have to be litigated. So I think that there is a healthy respect uh, for us as attorneys in taking cases that have merit mm. and the concern that we would not file the hearing request unless we felt there was good reason to file it. And in 10% of the cases, they get litigated. Our percentage of success is very high, but there are cases that we should not win, and sometimes we don't win them. Well said. So, um, in, in our opinion, and I'm sure yours as well, every case is important. And, and it, is, it is important to the family. That's right. Because my experience has been that almost every family who has a child with a disability is like a fabric that's being frayed. And your goal here is to weave that fabric back together again and make it as strong as possible. So for people to seek a lawyer because they need advocacy for their child, you know, I just feel a moral and ethical commitment to give them whatever time I can and to assess with them what I think the chances of success are going to be. And in instances where I think that their demands are inappropriate, to say the least, to tell them that the door is over there and to not let it hit them in the back side when they leave. 
I threw somebody out earlier today. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. So, um, very cool. So, um, one case that we know uh, that is of extreme significance is the Tom F. case that right. you worked on, and thank you for all doing all that for our people. Um, it was extremely significant and set president. So, um, just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. That case, the interesting thing about this practice is that when somebody comes in and you sign them up as a client, the next step is going to be the filing of the due process complaint and going to a hearing if the case doesn't settle. But you never know how far that case is going to go after the initial stage. And so that case went to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, Mr. F's child was in a private school, had never been in the public schools. And the city had settled the case, I think, for three years in a row. And so my feeling was that since they had not done very much uh, to improve their position vis-a-vis -vis his position, that it was going to settle again. And they decided not to settle. And they decided, even though they had lost below, that they were going to try a new trick um, to adversely impact parents who were seeking private school tuition. And so the argument which they latched on to was, well, this child has never been in a public school. And because he's never been in a public school before, the likelihood is that he would never go to a public school, and therefore, why should we pay for private school? And so it got down, the nitty-gritty was, does a parent have to make their child a guinea pig by placing them in a public school program that they feel is not going to assist their child. And the whole idea of being able to sue for tuition reimbursement is the court saying to the parent, look, if you're willing to put your money where your mouth is and put your child in a private school and risk not winning that tuition, then that's good enough for us. And that applies to both Carter cases or Connor cases which are the same as Carter, but for the fact that the parent does not have sufficient funds to front the tuition. And to me, the Connors case may have been more significant than the Carter case because it truly equaled the playing field between those who have and those who have do not have because the whole idea was to improve the status of the child and the educational um, performance of the child. And so that should be, you know, economic blind as well as racially blind. And so Mr. F's case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. It was an interesting decision because it was a four to four decision, which is unusual. Usually it's by majority. The four conservatives on the court ruled in favor of the position maintained by the Department of Ed. The four liberals ruled in the position of the parent. Uh, Justice Kennedy did not rule at all, and my understanding is he recused himself because he has two handicapped grandchildren. But be that as it may, it was a four to four split since we had one in the court below, which was the Circuit Court of Appeals. That was the decision that was maintained. That was a little over 10 years ago, is that right, that time? More then? than 10, I More think, at this point, yeah. Amazing. It goes faster as I get older. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> see, I'm totally like people get younger as I get older. So, you know, we know the DOE keeps a strong lid on, on these cases. Um, and like you said, you know. They're desperate to find ways to win other than just doing the right thing, which would eliminate the contest to begin with. Yeah, so I have a question about that. So does that look like them focusing on technicalities versus the real issues at hand, or...? Well, it doesn't just look like it. I think it is it. There is no reason in the world in a city like New York City that the Department of Ed cannot look at its competition and put them out of business. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. So, um, yeah. So there's another uh, big case going on now, a Supreme Court case uh, known as the Andrew F. case. Right. Wondering, in your opinion, uh, if you think it's as significant as many others do. I do. Why. As a matter of fact, uh, when you came in, I had an article on my desk written by Professor Alter and Professor Gottlieb at NYU, uh, and it's a very timely case. It takes special education equality to the next step. In other words, the court is saying you can't just give a kid an appetizer. You need to give them the full meal. And um, it is baiting school districts to rise to the occasion. Yeah, I wonder, you know, what that looks like in terms of the Department of Ed making changes based on that decision. I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> you know, and how the kids department. can make meaningful progress uh, instead of just being in the class. I, I think how it will be interpreted is that, you know, parents who monitor their children's progress, who want to be a part of their education, will then be able to review where the child was in the beginning of the school year, where the child is at the end of the school year, and determine if that progress was meaningful or not. I, I know that I basically ask my clients to come into the office with a neuropsychological evaluation. I think it's of utmost importance in putting a case together for them, but even more important, it tells the parent where their child is. And I often say to them, all right, let's go back for an update and let's see what progress was made, uh, if any. So I think it was a terrific decision. It forces school districts, to, like I said, to give at least more than the appetizer. How it will be effectuated in New York City, everything takes a long time. Mm -hmm. But it gives parents the opportunity to argue against a public program when they can show that that public program did not permit the child to make the progress they should and and it benefits the department because if a parent is seeking tuition reimbursement they then need to show that the progress was more than just minimal yeah, good point. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Good point. So you mentioned earlier that a lot of your cases, you know, are about parents seeking uh, private schools. And wondering if there's any other kinds of patterns that you see in, in the balance of the cases. I see that the Department of Education, instead of taking um, 
and looking at the success in educating 90-95% of the children with special needs targeted the 5% that have decided to go to private school. You know, if you're in baseball and you go up to bat and you have a 950 batting average, you're, you're going to the Hall of Fame. But they, they look at it as half empty, almost vindictive sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some wonderful people who work for the department, and then there are other people who act as if any tuition payment is coming out of their savings. And that's not the right way to look at it. A parent has to demonstrate that the department has not appropriately educated their child or that the IEP that's drafted will not, when effectuated, appropriately educate their child before tuition reimbursement can be considered. And for most parents, having to pay a year of college tuition, which is what the private schools cost nowadays, for a kid in first or second grade is a totally unexpected expense. Now look, you have parents who are elitists who will not put their child in a public placement under any condition, but they are the vast minority of parents. Okay. So the city kind of uses the argument, ah, uh, you know, they would never send their kid to a public school anyway. My position is dare me. Offer a program that will provide for the child, and then you win. Yeah, yeah, we, we couldn't agree more with you. So this is somewhat of a rhetorical question, but curious to hear your thoughts on if you think the Department of Ed will ever, you know, create and or mirror some of the programs that exist in private schools within the public sphere so there would be less, you know, people I, seeking out reimbursement and being educated in their neighborhood I, schools. I think that the DOE and its predecessor, the BOE, is the typical bureaucratic organization. And as such, they lack the creativity and flexibility that one needs and what one finds in the private schools. Mm -hmm. I have felt that the teachers union, which I supported many years ago when they first became and came into existence, makes it difficult for people at the Department of Ed because simply of dues checkoff, which is the fact that the Department of Education pays approximately $1,100, $1,200 a year in union dues on behalf of every teacher. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court heard that case this week. Can you force everybody to have to pay union dues? Big implications. Right, big, especially here in New York. It's like 25% revenue that they can lose. Right. So. And the teachers at the special ed private schools typically make less and are happy to be there. And as a result of that, the, um, they're not unionized. So the union, in the background, attempts to manipulate the situation to make it difficult for parents to place their children in private schools because it will ultimately lead to less revenue for the UFT, which is the largest lobby in New York State. So, I, you know, I'm not really a conspiracy theory person, but in this arena I am.
unfair. <laughs> so how much, uh, you know, one of, I hate to focus on the union, but it's related to this question, which is that class size has, is often a, a, a reason that is used among educators for uh, the lack of progress for our kids, not just kids with disabilities, all kids. I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I truly do. And as I consider myself an educator, I am a certified school principal. I've done the training. I've done the internship. You know, I mean, children need to be with other children. So I don't subscribe to one-to-one -to -one education unless it's justified by an extreme emotional basis for a child who cannot be with anybody else. But clearly, if you have the attention of a teacher to a greater extent, it's going to benefit you and it's going to benefit the teacher. I mean, I think that the board's attempt with ICT classes on paper was a very good response to the fact that you want to integrate children. But if you look at the IEP, it has the ratio of 12 to 1. And you're taking that group of 12 children and putting them with 15 kids who don't have any issues. And for a lot of kids, that's devastating because now they're put in an arena where they're constantly reminded of their disability by having to compete against kids who have no disability. So I think the downside is far, to me personally, far greater than the upside. Yeah, yeah, makes total sense. And there are too many people in the room. There are too many stressors, too much going on, especially for kids who have problems focusing. Yep, and sensory issues for sure. So. Um, Recently, the Regents, uh, the state board, uh, lowered the standards required for uh, students to earn a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. And so, wondering how, what you think. I think it's, look, I'm going to try not to fall That's a softball. <laughs> Come on. Why, why have standards? Why have any standards? I mean, you know, instead of the high jump, let's make it the low jump. Yeah. I mean, the point is, you, you can adjust standards, but don't eliminate the standards and don't use the lowering of standards to justify your success rate. And that's that they're corrupting the system. Agreed, because there are some people within the advocacy community who, who don't think that the standards are being lowered, but on the flip side, believe that it, you know, they're becoming more within reach, you yeah. know, whether it's through accommodations or, or through um, a variation of means of how students are assessed. Um, I, I personally agree with you that this is a way to close the achievement gap. I agree with At you. our expense, Look, our kids' there, expense. There are some kids who are going to need to feel that they're successful. Okay? And I can understand for those kids to have a flexible standard so that they can meet up with success. And I'm not smart enough to tell you what that should be. Mm -hmm. But when I have to challenge an IEP and the committee comes back at a hearing, for example, and says, look at how the kid did this year compared to how they did last year. I said, sure. Last year, your success rate was 75%. Now you've dropped it to 25%. Show me where the child has succeeded, as opposed to the institution succeeding because they lowered the standard. 
crimes. Yeah. It's a fraud. Totally. And it's a fraud that they're perpetrating on the public to justify their own inefficiency. Totally. It, you know, immediately what comes to mind to me is the difference between modifications and accommodations, right? right? So with modifications, as Gene cleverly has put in the past, you know, is changing the desired outcome as opposed to giving supports to reach the same outcome. And I think that's a really great distinction, and I kind of hear some of this bleeding into that. And, and you know, I, don't, I think that's going to um, require a big cultural change within the system, because as we see in, in schools and uh, neighborhoods and school districts and lower and higher socioeconomic need, that more students there still have modified promotional criteria on their IEPs and you know when these kids get older so what happens to these kids who nobody seems to care it's a fraud and they're perpetrating a fraud on the public and what I see is that the parents who already have their children in special ed private schools those schools participate in the development of the IEP for you mean real participation real participation as opposed to people who are still in the public schools who often don't know the kid wouldn't recognize the kid if they tripped over them right. telling a certified neuropsychologist what they think about what will benefit the child yeah oh, so sad and true so we're talking about kids as they uh, get older and approach graduation and you know, uh, standards being changed and, you know, we now have, uh, if a kid doesn't pass the regents after one attempt, that a uh, decision can be made by a superintendent and, um, you know, wondering what your thoughts are about that and how we really don't know what that's going to look like in the future because it just started, um, what, what you think? Well, I think what we're dealing with is a system that would very much like to sweep the situation under the rug. Can't wait to move kids along. Um, and I try to explain to parents that their children are entitled to an education until they're 21 or receive a high school diploma. And if they think that they're being, um, you know, prematurely graduated to halt the process, take a course or two away, how far not, in advance does that have to happen? Uh, well, you know, I would say it should be planned no later than the first semester of the senior year. But I've had people in here who I have asked um, to go back to the school and have their child withdraw from a class in their second semester of the senior year so that they cannot be graduated and therefore they're entitled to another year of schooling. And especially in the area where there are significant emotional goals, where you cannot judge the uh, propriety of graduation based solely on academic progress, and you have to factor in the extent to which the emotional goals have been met, and in that instance, to stop the process. Now, it's easier to stop the process because the lack of meeting the academic goals is a black and white issue. The issue of emotional goals is more gray, so I would like to make it as easy as possible on the parent. But again, if if the psychiatrist says that you know this is a kid who's got significant emotional issues and really has not met the goals, 
I'm willing to pursue that and advocate that on behalf of the parent. But like I said again, one of the um, objectives would be to make it easy, even on the DOE, uh, by having the child not meet all of the credit requirements. Yeah. Um, I find, I don't find enough advocates for children within the system. That's that's my problem. Funny there you are, say that. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of advocacy agencies and groups, but they're all outside. That's and, so you know, they've got to be invited inside. And the system has to do some of its own self-advocacy. And I haven't seen that, and I have not seen it from the beginning. Um, I've always said that I have felt like dealing with the BOE, and now the DOE was like trying to housebreak a dinosaur. They don't print enough newspaper. It's so true, by design. You know, I, I, I've only been at this for five, six years, and uh, in my mid-40s, I have a 15-year-old son. And uh, I've become more cynical over time and desensitized. And Gene and I often joke that I can be the shoemaker whose kid doesn't have shoes. And I say this because um, I have one foot in the developmental disability service world, one foot in education, specifically special education. I am a white woman who's educated with a kid in District 75 program. I only know about five other parents who fit the same demographic as me. And um, I can see that we're at a turning point because kids, uh, parents, older parents with older kids in the DD space, the developmental disability space, who, you know, were lucky enough to help create the system after Willowbrook, they're, you know, they're moving on in life. And the younger families are consumed with navigating the education world. And I find often that I don't have any colleagues or people to bounce things off of as a parent first, not as a professional. And I say this because I, I get worried. Sometimes I'm like, screw this. I should just worry about my own kid. And I found some hope recently um, through a project that we... Uh, did over the fall in which we cultivated 25 parents from uh, throughout the city who came on Saturdays for six sessions who wanted to learn. And we didn't pay them. There was no skin in the game other than they wanted to be there. And I felt hope for the first time. And um, I, I say this to share the hope. I don't know where it will go, but we're at a very well, you can't interesting give up. You point. can't give up. Uh, I've always had a policy in my office of not charging for the consultation so cool. because I don't want a parent to fear being able to ask questions because they don't have money. I grew up poor. I know what it is. I grew up in a public housing project. And just by luck, I've been able to get through college and law school on scholarship, and I feel an obligation to give back. And for many parents, especially parents from lower socioeconomic areas of the city, dealing with a lawyer usually represents a torturous situation. So we never turn anybody away, and if they cannot afford me, then we do the work pro bono. I can't, on, you know, in good conscience, turn somebody away because they can't afford our fee. And that's the way I've operated. And I'm very happy about the way I have operated. I sleep well at night. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I, I thank you. We thank you so much for your time and all the work that you've done in um, 
helping to advance our people what we what we say um, and um, look forward to continuing to watch the work you do and I thank you and your organization for doing what you do otherwise you wouldn't be talking to me now I would shun giving an interview <laughs> cool thank Thanks, you so much Nina. amazing <laughs>